had the notorious reputation as the world's greatest miser. When she died in 1916 at the age of 81, her estate was worth $100 million, roughly $3 billion in today's money. Yet Hattie was so tight-fisted, she refused to turn on the heat in her room. And she never used the hot water, didn't want to pay for the heating. She ate cold oatmeal and cheap pies to save money. She washed only the dirtiest portion of her dresses, the hems, so that she could cut back on soap. Once she searched a carriage all night long just to find a lost postage stamp that was worth two cents. When Hetty's oldest son, Ned, broke his leg, his mom tried to admit him into a free clinic for the poor. Well, when she was found out, she took him home vowing to treat his wounds herself. Eventually, Ned's leg had to be amputated because of his own mother's reluctance to spend money on his treatment. I'm saying this lady was stingy. Yet this is the life that's lived by many Christians. Our spiritual account is full of blessings, but we never draw on that account. Our spiritual pantry is stocked with all that we need, and yet we spend our days famished. One of my favorite Bible commentators, Alexander McLaren, he writes this, Alas, that when we might have so much... We do have so little. See, it's not that God hasn't blessed us. He has lavished His blessings upon us. It's that we have failed to take advantage of His rich treasures. In the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, we read them a few weeks ago, Paul laid out for us in a single, lone, some people call a run-on sentence, Paul lays out who we are and what we have in Christ. And our inheritance is breathtaking. In Christ, we're chosen. We're holy. We're blameless. We're loved. We're pre-picked by God himself in his wisdom. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We're graced and accepted and redeemed and forgiven of all our sins out of the riches of his grace. We're made part of a plan with a glorious ending. We're given an eternal inheritance. Even a foretaste of heaven through the mark and seal of His Holy Spirit. I mean, the breadth of our blessings is astonishing. But just knowing of these spiritual blessings is not enough. Think of God's redemption and acceptance and adoption and forgiveness as fixed assets. They're settled in heaven. They're in sort of an eternal escrow, you could say. But the question becomes, how can I liquefy those blessings? How can I unlock them? How can I unfreeze them so that I can sink my teeth into them? How can I cash them in on experience and really get my hands on their value? Say I'm haunted by past mistakes Overcome by guilt. Say that I feel condemned. How liquid is God's mercy and grace? Can I cash it in to lift my spirits? Heaven too is a fixed asset. But when the evil of this world crowds in and tries to suffocate my faith, 
How accessible to me is the joy and power of heaven? See, we need to know how to quickly withdraw our riches in Christ and apply them at the point of our weakness or in the face of the temptation when a touch of heaven is needed right now, right here on earth. This is so vital. Here's another way to say it. How do I tangibilize my blessings? Now, I realize tangibilize is not a word in the dictionary. I know that. But it does fit exactly with what I'm trying to say tonight. To tangibilize is to make the spiritual tangible. To make the spiritual relatable and grippable. It brings what's spiritual into my physical world. It makes the intangible tangible. To human beings... Spiritual blessings are often ethereal and otherworldly and mystical kind of stuff. We brush up against them on occasion, but God really wants us living in their reality. Here's one man's observation. The problem with the church is that it doesn't practice the gospel. We preach it, pray it, and sing it. We just don't tangibilize it. This is Paul's desire for us. To experience the reality of our riches. Unlike Hetty Green, we should enjoy and benefit from the wealth that we've been given in Christ. Jesus paid for the blessings with his precious blood. How dare we let them lie dormant and never use them? We need to experience the blessings to the max. And how does Paul suggest we do it? By prayer. For after listing our blessings in Christ here in verses 1 through 14, beginning in verse 15, Paul asked God to tangibilize these riches in his church. He prays for his readers. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers." On occasion, we run across a prayer in Scripture. And when we do, we should pay special attention to it. See, God has embedded certain prayers in His Word for a reason. You know, I found the best way to learn to pray is by example. You remember the disciples came to Jesus one day and they asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray. And He responded by giving them a prayer to pray, a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. The implication is that you learn to pray by praying. Prayer is better caught than it is taught. And in Ephesians, we find two prayers that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Here and then later in chapter 3. We'll talk about it next Wednesday. Paul prayed for his friends in Ephesus. You know, I believe the greatest favor you can do for any friend is to pray for them. You know, on occasion we'll say, sorry, but all I can really do is pray for you. Don't be sorry about that. Prayer is the greatest blessing that you can give anyone. For you to intercede on God, to God on my behalf, nothing you can do has a greater impact. I like the old saying, never put anyone down unless it's on your prayer list. Often we only pray for people in trouble who are backslidden or snake-bitten. 
But Paul prayed for the Ephesians because of the goodness he saw in them. He says, when he heard of their faith in the Lord and their love for all the saints, it motivated him to lift them up in prayer. And understand, these are two marks of a true Christian. Faith and love. Jesus said the world will know we're his followers by our t-shirt? No. By our love for one another. E. Stanley Jones said of his coming to Christ, When I was converted and rose from my knees, the first thing I wanted to do was put my arms around the world. And that's the effect Christ has on a person. The person that knows Jesus will want to love one another. And as verse 15 implies, faith and love go hand in hand. Faith in Jesus always produces love for all the saints. And notice that word all. It's so important. You know, we come from different places, different occupations. Look around the room tonight. We have different backgrounds, probably political persuasions. But the Christian's emphasis is not on where we've been. It's on where we're going. And we're all headed in the same direction, aren't we? We're in Christ. I like this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the Ephesians not only love those whom they happen to like, but all the saints. Not only the clever ones, not only the learned ones, not only the pleasant ones, not only those who belong to a particular social stratum. No, all the saints. We do not ask, where, was he come, where has he come from? Or what school has he attended? Or what is his bank balance? We're interested in one thing only. Is he a child of God? Is he my brother? Are we related? You know, as your pastor, can I encourage you tonight? Don't get caught up in the political partisanship of our day. Have faith. God is working in in us all. And show love. Show love for all the saints. For in verse 17, Paul begins his prayer for the Ephesians. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now here's his first request. That God would give these believers insight into the knowledge of who He is. Did you know this is the human being's greatest attainment? The knowledge of God? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Do you know God in an intimate, in a personal way? There was an ancient Greek maxim carved into the temple of Apollo. And it was quoted by Plato. Know thyself. This same adage has become the cornerstone of modern psychology. Self-knowledge, self-awareness is supposedly the key to our peace and our happiness. But not so, says Paul. The key to unraveling the tangled knot we call life and making sense of our messy world is not know thyself. It's know God. Do you know God? Hey, know God, no peace. But no God and no peace. 
This is the ultimate prize, friends. The secret for which the sages of the ages have longed. The knowledge of God. David, the poet king of Israel, he wrote in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Mighty Moses asked God, Show me your glory. Paul was a Christian 30 years when he wrote to the Philippians, This one thing I do, that I may know him. You want to know God? Augustine, an early church leader, he wrote of his intoxicating experience with God. He says, you called, you cried, you shattered my deafness, you sparkled, you blazed, you drove away my blindness, you shed your fragrance, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you. These were all people who wanted to know Jesus. They weren't content with just knowing about him or hearing from someone who knew him. Or even interacting with him casually or at a distance. No, their passion was to know Christ up close and personal. I love the lyrics to the old hymn. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. O send thy spirit, Lord, now to me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. I love that line. Beyond the sacred page. I seek thee. Now don't misunderstand. (laughs) I love and revere the sacred page. I am a student of the Bible. You should know that by now. Hopefully you are too. But the point of our Bible isn't just to disperse information. The Bible introduces us to God. The point of the Bible is to help us know the God of the Bible. There is an experiential knowledge of God that runs deeper than the page. It brings the page to life. It's when you are touched by God. It's when you are gripped by God. Do you know Him beyond the sacred page? A relationship with God, of course, that's contrary to the sacred page of Scripture is never a legitimate experience. But there is an encounter That occurs beyond the page. It's deeper. And it's more personal. And it's more intimate. And entering into this experience. Is not the result of our own quest. Or our own search. It's not up to us to flush out God. As if God is shy. He's like a quail. You know rustled from the bushes. That's not God. See we don't coax God down from heaven. Through mindless meditation or through the allure of crystals or by rubbing beads together or by saying Hail Marys or by staring at our navel or by chanting some mantra or by making sacrifices or keeping commandments or observing certain days or following laws and on and on ad nauseum. For us to know God, He has to reveal Himself to us. God is too high, He's too holy. He's too infinite for us to approach Him on our own. God lives in rarefied air. You and I could never survive His altitude. Knowing God isn't up to us reaching up to Him. It's God bending down to us. It's foolish to believe that all roads lead to God. There are no roads that lead to God. It's God that comes down to us. 
Here's how to experience God. Position yourself in Christ by faith. Trust in Jesus. For it is only in Christ that we are chosen and adopted and accepted and forgiven. Then, like Paul, pray that God would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. In Christ, you can log on spiritually. Did you know you can go online with God? I can't explain it. It's a miracle. It's what the Bible tells us. God reveals Himself in a way that only He can. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's you in Christ. You enter into an interactive relationship. Romans 8 verse 16 explains it this way. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. How does that happen? I don't know, but it does. His Spirit interfaces with my spirit. A conveyance begins under the surface of our lives. On a heart level, the Holy Spirit begins to create a sensitivity in me to God's presence and to His many blessings. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, He was confined to a body. And thus, he could only be at one place and at one time. But after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit to take his place. To pick up where he had left off. And now God's Holy Spirit initiates constant overtures to all believers. Thinking of the disciples who witnessed Jesus return to heaven. Augustine sums it up. He said, Jesus departed from our sight that we, now trusting in him, might return to our heart and there find him. For he departed and he is here. He departed and he is here. This is made possible by the spirit of revelation. During the Great Depression, times were tough and jobs were scarce. Only the telegraph office was hiring. The job opening was receiver. And the job's only qualification was a working knowledge of Morse code. The waiting room was packed with applicants. In fact, everyone was mixing and mingling. There was quite a commotion in the waiting room. Obviously, running late, one fella, he walked into the office after everyone else had gotten there, and he sat down quietly. Well, not two minutes later, he rose up and he walked into the boss's office on his own accord. And you know how everybody reacted to that? They were ticked off. Who is this guy breaking in line? But not soon afterwards, the boss emerged, along with the rude fellow who had broken line. The boss announced that this was the guy who had gotten the job. Everyone was angry. Here's what had happened. While all the people were out chit-chatting in the foyer, the boss was in the other room, tapping in Morris Code. First person to hear this message and walk into my office gets the job. Only one person was so tuned in that he could hear beyond the din of the room, beyond the noise, and heed the call. And hey, this is true in life. God will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation But it can be drowned out by the hustle and bustle of this world. Are you listening to the tapping? Are you picking up on the messages from the other room? 
I've talked to folks who tell me, Pastor Sandy, if I could only see God, then I'd believe. But none of us see spiritual realities with physical eyes. We need inner eyes. That's why Paul prays here in verse 18 that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. At first glance, that's a strange phrase, isn't it? The eyes of my understanding. You probably didn't know that your understanding had eyes. You know, when our kids were little, my wife Kathy, her understanding of children, their motivations and their behavior was so keen that she could predict their next move. In fact, she still can. And she had our kids convinced that there were actually eyes in the back of her head. And they'd jump on the bed at night and they'd grab mom's hair and they'd start pulling it apart to try to find her eyes. The eyes in the back of her head. But an understanding with eyes, what's that? It's interesting to track down the biblical references to our spiritual anatomy. The Bible ascribes to the spirit the same senses it ascribes to our body. Here's a list. John 3 verse 3 implies that the spirit man sees. Matthew 13 verse 9, the inner man has ears to hear. Psalm 34 verse 8 encourages us, taste and see that the Lord is good. We have taste and sight. In Philippians 4 verse 18, the generosity of the Philippians was like a sweet smelling aroma to both Paul and God. Spiritually, we can smell. Spiritually, we can see and hear and taste and smell. Apparently, our understanding does have eyes. See, it's one thing to know a truth intellectually. But it's quite another thing to see how that truth applies practically. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples concerning the fickle faith of the multitudes. He said, seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Or do they understand? They saw with these eyes, but they didn't see with the eyes of their understanding. It's been said, some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. And that's true spiritually. See, we've all choked on dust when we decided to sweep the floor, haven't we? But a janitor named Murray Spangler, he had an idea. Rather than stir up the dust, why not suck up the dust? And so he designed a crude but workable vacuum cleaner. And he talked to a friend about investing in his idea. Guess who the friend was? His name was H.W. Hoover. Hoover Vacuums. Had a good idea, didn't he? Isaac Newton saw an apple fall from the tree. And he deduced from that very familiar event that many people have seen the theory of gravity. James Watt was watching a kettle boil. It prompted him to develop the idea for the first steam engine. I've stirred up dust. And I've watched apples fall from trees. And I've watched water boil from kettles. But that's all I saw. I didn't see a vacuum or gravity or steam engine. My understanding lacked the eyes of Spangler and Newton and Watts. See, it's one thing to see, but do you really see the potentials, 
possibilities, the ramifications. Information and insight are very different traits. Information is knowledge of the facts, but insight is the wisdom to use those facts to one's advantage. And this is why Paul prays for the Ephesians, for insight. He wants them and us to tangibilize our treasure, to realize our riches, to cash in on what we have in Christ. And Paul especially wants God to open our eyes to three truths. Verse 18. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Are your eyes wide open to the hope of your calling? And to his inheritance in the saints. And to the greatness of his power toward us who believe. Hey, realize that in Christ you have a grand and glorious calling. I hope you know this. You have been chosen and adopted as a child of God. This makes you a co-heir with Christ. This is incredible. You could be president of the United States. Or the Queen of England. Or the coach of the Georgia Bulldogs, no less. And it would be a step down for you. For you have the highest calling known to man in Christ. You are somebody special. But do you really know it? Have you tangibilized this calling? Oh, we nod when the pastor talks about our adoption in Christ. But does the truth that we are beloved of God give us goosebumps? Does it cause our chest to stick out? Does it make our eyes twinkle? It should. Here's a truth that should grip us and elevate us and change everything about how we see ourselves. The hope of our calling that you and I are kids of the king. Here's a truth that should boost your self-worth. A truth that should bolster your resolve and purpose. A truth that should immunize you from human opinions. A truth that should set you on a Godward trajectory and nothing should be able to knock you off course. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, the Christian who has the smile of God needs no status symbols. And you, if you're in Christ, you have the smile of God. But again, do I really get it? The truth of this truth If you truly embrace the hope of your calling, you would never lower yourselves to worldly standards. If you realize what Christ thinks of you, why would you ever get bummed out just because Susie down the street didn't invite you to her Tupperware party? If you relish who you are in Christ, you won't be upset when the world doesn't award you with its accolades. Here's my point. We need to tangibilize our calling. And are our eyes wide open to his inheritance in the saints? Earlier in the chapter, we talked about our inheritance in Christ. But did you know that God also has an inheritance? And guess what it is? Here's where you need to hold on to your hat, friend. It's a shocker. God's inheritance is you. It's you. You are God's treasure. He considers you his fabulous fortune. 
Realize the Father in heaven longs to receive you and me and clothe us in his glory. In Psalm 2 verse 8, God the Father says to his son Jesus, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. In John 17, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, numerous times he refers to his disciples both then and now as those the Father gave him. We are the Father's gift to his only begotten Son. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did Jesus submit to the cross? What was in it for him? It was you. Fellowship with you is the joy that was set before him. See, I'm convinced that none of us has the slightest inkling of just how great a love God has for us. I love the hymn by Frederick Lehman, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We read those words and we're stunned by their imagery. But have you tangibilized His love for you? The eyes of your understanding see just how much God values you. If so, why do you shed tears at night and bemoan how lonely you feel? If so, why are you upset that the office crowd has decided to turn its back against you? Your love with a depth of love that's unimaginable. You're precious to God. In the midst of this world's coldness, you can warm your hands by the fire of that truth. But Pastor Sandy... I need something more tangible. Something I can see and touch and really hear. But you don't. No, you don't. What you need is faith. What you need is faith to tangibilize God's love. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is what tangibilizes spiritual realities, what gives the spiritual substance. It brings texture and substance to what would otherwise elude us. Paul calls, he prays, he prays to the Father in heaven that he will open our eyes to the hope of our calling and to his inheritance in the saints, but also that your inner eyes would open to the greatness of his power toward us who believe. And Paul goes on to describe the magnitude of this power. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
know, it's interesting that whenever the Old Testament writers refer to God's power, they measure it up against creation or Noah's flood or the exodus from Egypt or some other epic event. But when the New Testament writers want to reference the greatness of God's power, they always point to the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's the benchmark of power. The cross of Christ is the greatest power plug that has ever been. God's greatest unleashing of power was through the work of Jesus on the cross. What Jesus did to redeem the world back to God eclipses what God did to create it in the first place. Jesus died and rose and ascended to the Father's right hand to obtain the ultimate authority. Today, angelic ranks and principalities in heaven and on earth fall under His jurisdiction. Every name will bow to Jesus. Unless we ever get confused, Jesus has authority in and over His church. Jesus is king in His church. You know, I love this imagery here. The church is the body and Jesus is its head. This means that the church is lost without Jesus. Imagine a body without a head. It's uncoordinated. It's clueless. It's useless. It's good as dead. But flip that analogy over too. It's equally stunning. Jesus compares himself to the head of a body. But a head by itself isn't complete without the rest of the body. And this is how much Jesus wants us. He has tied his purposes To our loyalty and our cooperation. Without the body, the head isn't complete. His plans are crippled. Never forget how important you are to Jesus. You're his body. And he wants to open the eyes of our understanding to something truly incredible. The greatness of his power. Yes, it boggles the brain that God wants to plug us into the same power that Jesus that held Jesus to the cross, that allowed Jesus to conquer death, that exalted Jesus to the place of supreme and ultimate authority. This very same power is available to us. And I have to admit, when I read that and I understand that intellectually, my experience still falls short. Here's what I need to do. I need to tangibilize. I need faith. Listen again to Alexander McLaren's insightful words. He writes, how do we know a power? I mean, how do you know a power? By thrilling beneath its force. For example, you learn the power of a waterfall by standing underneath its crash. By thrilling beneath its force. McLaren finishes. How are we to know the greatness of the power of God? But because it comes surging and rejoicing into our aching emptiness. And lifts us buoyant above our temptations and weaknesses. Paul was asking that their spirits might be saturated and immersed in that great ocean of force that pours from God. Man, I want to be immersed In that great ocean of force. And my question to you today is, do you dare ask God to saturate you and overwhelm you with this force?
Why are we looking at our sins and our weaknesses as if they're mountains that can't be scaled? Don't we believe God's power can lift us over any obstacle? How dare we capitulate or not try when the power of the Almighty beats underneath our breastbone? Here's what your faith needs to see. Again, look closely at verse 19. To whom is God's power intended? Divine power is directed toward us who believe. Do you and I really believe? Here's how you tangibilize your high calling and his inheritance in you and the resurrection of the power of Jesus. It might not be easy, but it's simple. You believe. You believe. You have faith. You take God at his word. You ignore everything that tells you not to. Your doubts and your fears and your skepticisms and your worries and all the falsehoods you've heard and you plunge head first into faith. You thrill beneath its force. Stop toying with the blessings you've been given. Start banking on them instead. Stop living like a spiritual miser. Jesus has earned abundant resources for us to spend. They're fixed for sure, but they're also as liquid as our faith is strong. Believe and pray and tangibilize your treasure. Ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Pray that God will open your inner eyes to the hope of your calling to His inheritance in the saints, and to the greatness of His power toward us. I'll close with an old saying that offers good advice. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. You can do that. You can do that by faith. That's God's word to us. Have faith and be filled. Now, I want everybody to...